you took a grant from the Canadian government and then moved to an island in Greece to live with a Scandinavian model and be like, yeah, no, trust me, I'm right. Don't worry about it. There's flowers for Hitler. It's great. Yeah, where do I sign up for that? Welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode of 1001 Album Complaints, the show where lifelong friends, musicians, and complainers get together to break down and tell the backstory of a randomly selected album from Robert Dimery's classic 1001 albums, You Must Hear Before You Die. We're going to get into the weeds with this record. We're going to tell you how it got made. We're going to play a bunch of clips along the way so no worries if you're not super familiar we're going to help you get there and at the end of this podcast we're going to vote on whether or not you actually needed to hear this record before you died now i should let everyone know a little fair warning we are musicians ourselves we've been in the studio many times we've all been on stage and written our own songs so we have the utmost respect for anyone who is putting song to tape or pen to paper but that said it's fun to make a little fun of the things you enjoy. So we're going to definitely complain about and poke some fun at this album. So fair warning for the Leonard Cohen stands tuned in to this program. This week, as I just alluded to, we're talking about the debut record from one Leonard Cohen. It is titled simply Songs of Leonard Cohen. And just to give you a little flavor of what this sounds like, in case you haven't heard it in a while, we're just going to play a clip of the opening track. It's called Suzanne. Suzanne takes you down to her place near the river. You can hear the boats go by. You can spend the night beside her. And you know that she's half crazy. But that's why you wanna be there And she feeds you tea and oranges That come all the way from China And just when you mean to tell her That you have no love to give her Then she gets you on her wavelength And she lets the river answer That you've always Okay, and now you have an idea of what we've been listening to all week, where our heads have been. We're about to get into it. I'd like to introduce everyone who's in studio tonight by way of a tweet-length review of the album. Tell us how your week went. We're going to throw it first to Tom. All right, thanks, Rob. This is Tom. My tweet-length review here is, I'm going to actually use a quote from former CBS record head Walter Yetnikoff. And what he said to Leonard Cohen when he was refusing to release one of his albums. Listen, Leonard, we know you're great. We're just not sure if you're any good. I agree with one of those statements. <laughs> wow. Early boosh. Early boosh. Okay. Let's keep this rolling. We got, we got a lot to get through tonight. Let's send it over to Alan. Hey, everybody. Alan here. And my tweet length review is a writer and poet decides he wants to improve his financial situation and his career prospects, and for some reason thinks that writing songs is the path to riches. But somehow it works. 
I'm not quite sure I get why it worked, but there's enough here to at least pique my interest. Excellent, excellent. Let's keep this rolling. Throw it to Marty next. Hey, 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 what up? Here's my tweet. Songs of Leonard Cohen. The album The Bob Dylan Lobby does not want you to hear. Mm. <laughs> How did I know Marty was going to like this album? I, I like just had it. An inkling. <laughs> I like it. This is a very Marty record. In light of that, I must supply my backup tweet, which was if I had heard this for the first time before I heard Bob Dylan in my life, I might like folk music a little better. So, <laughs> God, you guys are so wrong on so many levels. You might have been like, wow, that Bob Dylan guy's got a great voice. <laughs> <laughs> Let's, without further ado, roll it along to our very special guest. We're going to give him a proper introduction shortly, but first we'd like to hear his tweet-length review. This is Josh joining us from the Dad Rocks podcast. Josh, take it away. Hey, everybody. All right, here we go. Sounding like a mix of Bob Dylan, Neil Diamond, and Lou Reed, fellow Jewish singer-songwriter Leonard Cohen's debut album feels like a slow-moving, haunting dream where you are stuck in a fantasy novel and want to escape but can't, as evidenced by the screams that end the album. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Listen, I think we're kind of all treading in similar waters here. Uh, my name is Rob. I'm going to be walking us down Leonard Cohen Lane tonight. And my tweet length review is, At long last, I think I found the absolute perfect soundtrack for sipping sweet brandy under the most watchful eye of the River King while a single salty tear rolls down my wizened face. See, guys, I've been doing that in pristine silence for like three to four nights a week recently, so this, this couldn't have come at a better time. You think this has strong drinking energy? I thought this, this album had strong heroin energy. Like, if I was into heroin, I'd love it. <laughs> the first thing that I thought of when I listened to this entire album, my tweet length review is going to be, this must be what it feels like to be on heroin. Like, that's what I was thinking. Like, this is this is a, a trip on heroin. Well, Lou Reed's been invoked already, so, <laughs> yeah. you know, that, yeah. that, that tracks. <laughs> I am excited to get into the backstory. I'm excited to get into our general impressions of the record and tell this story. But first, let's introduce our guest, Josh, joining us from the Dad Rocks podcast. Thank you so much for coming. I'm going to pass the mic to you. Why don't you tell us a little about the Dad Rocks podcast and and what you're excited about here tonight. Yeah, well, first off, thanks, guys, for having me on. I've been a fan of the show for, you know, a while since I discovered you. I guess back in the summer, I've been listening to a bunch of episodes. My podcast, uh, Dad Rocks, is a podcast about basically parenting and music and the intersection of those two things. We try to get on parents, mainly dads, who are involved with music or are involved in the music industry, and we talk to them about their lives and how they can be really good fathers, or parents while they're also, you know, a lot of them are on tour or just, you know, the struggles of, that they've gone through through parenting and then, you know, their musical journey, whether it's their career, or, you know, their interest and stuff. And we had Tom on uh, a few months ago. Highlight of the show, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> no, but we've been we've been very lucky to have a lot of great guests on. Steve Gorman from the Black Crows was on. Billy Martin from Modesky Martin of Wood was on. Wow. Brendan Benson from the Rack and Tours. I just talked to Marco Benevento from Benevento Russo Duo, and so we've been very fortunate to have a lot of people I consider to be you know influences and minor celebrities, or for me like big time celebrities, and also Tom. Yeah, and, and Tom. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Rounding it out. <laughs> well, it's a great it's a great show. We were excited to have you on. Those are some rad guests for sure, and and definitely fans of this show. Easy window. Check go check out Tom's episode. Hear him opining about fatherhood and bass playing. 
Well, we're going to have all the links, Josh's links in the show notes. Go check out the Dad Rocks podcast. Now, let's get into Leonard Cohen. I would love to hear a little more about how your week's went. And honestly, I'd like to hear from Marty first. Why don't you set us off, hopefully on a positive note, buddy? So overall impression, you know, easy album to like, dark, mysterious, simple. It's a very visual album. The one thing that kind of stuck out to me, and I was asking myself, as someone who was spawned from boomers, who were very much into 60s music, they didn't have this album. They never played Leonard Cohen. I had no idea who he was until I was in college. And I'm just trying to wondering to myself while listening, like, why was this so new to me when it came out in '67? I think it has a lot to do with coming after Bob Dylan, right? And then they got yeah. a lot of Bob Dylan comps going on. And listen, I didn't hate this album, but it got a little tiring on repeat listens because it's very samey and a lot of the songs are incredibly formulaic. I feel like. In the first 15 seconds of a song, I could predict what the rest of the song was going to sound like almost every time. The ones where that was not the case, I really liked, and it caught me off guard, and I, I thought that they were fantastic songs, generally. I think his lyrics are really good, but I don't know. I don't like poets. I think poets are kind of insufferable, and he gives off strong poet energy on this album. And, you know, overall, I, I think that it it left me wanting... And not necessarily even a bad way. Sometimes it left me wanting more, but sometimes it left me wanting him to do more with these songs. Yeah, I hear that. I, Marty, you, I picked up on something you said. You said it's an easy album to like. I, I don't agree with that. It took me a while to really start to feel this one out. And I think it's because, and to pick up on something you said, Tom, you, you referred to songs. I am not sure that these qualify as songs, to be honest, some of them, especially in the early parts of the album. Honestly, some of it sounds like he just picked up a guitar and was just voicing over his his poetry over a quarter or two. I think it got better as the album went along. I I would say I ultimately came away like feeling enough to want to keep (laughs) listening to it, but it it is not an easy album to like. I'm going to argue with that. Hold on. Can we just say that your description of poetry over guitar chords? I mean, that is a song. That's what a song is. <laughs> no, yeah, you know, but usually they have melody too. <laughs> exactly. Yes. So I actually looked up the Wikipedia definition of a song because I knew you were going to come after me. So it's a musical composition performed by the human voice. Check. It's often done at distinct and fixed pitches using patterns of sound inside. Yeah, see, that's where the patterns, I didn't really hear <laughs> that much of it throughout. Uh, listen, I'll, I'll speak up here. This is Rob, and this is, it has a lot of what I really should like. I'm a huge Bob Dylan fan, as the record, I think, shows. I defended him against Alan's Slings and Arrows several months ago, I guess. But I was pretty new to Leonard Cohen. I do think he has a lot to like. I don't think it's an accessible album, though. So I kind of disagree with Marty on that. But I think the songwriting is quite strong. I think he just takes a really different approach to songwriting than most other people do. And I understand the Bob Dylan comps, but I honestly don't really think he takes that similar an approach to Dylan either. For me, this was, when I was coming on to, when I was invited onto the show, this was not even an album I even knew was on the list. And the only thing I ever knew about Leonard Cohen was that he wrote Hallelujah and he sang like, (laughs) like that. So when I first heard the album, I was like, oh, this is what he sounded like when he was younger. And then I also realized that 
as a drummer, there's no drums on this album except for one track. <laughs> so on top of me being a music guy rather than a lyric guy, this was a hard listen to for the first few listens. And then I got used to it. And then the songs kept crept in my head for like the week. And I was waking up hearing, you know, the songs. But I think lyrically, you know, he, I, I, I believe he was a poet actually, or he was, he, he wanted to be a poet before he he's tried his hand in music and kind of was like pushed by, I think you know, you'll probably go with this in the history, but like Judy Collins kind of pushed him to go up on the stage and perform and he didn't want to perform. And so like the album kind of comes off as like a guy who's kind of unsure of himself and is trying to figure out what he wants to be because the lyrics, I, I was very confused by lyrics. I am not a literary person. Like some of the imagery probably went over my head and it just seemed very wordy and without having like a great musical background to some of these songs and it's just a you know repetitive chord changes and with his finger picking and stuff like that it was kind of boring to me and you know the songs that did have melody to them and like had this like kind of up uplifting feeling were definitely more exciting but overall it, it was an album I never would have listened to or searched out to listen to it gave me kind of an understanding of why people dig him but overall it's really not my bag Josh I, I want to touch on what you talked about with the finger picking and the lack of drums because there is almost no rhythmic commitment right. on this album at all there's no held chords there's no real sense of a beat or timing in these songs and that over the course of an album leads to a really rambling feel that just sort of blends together. It's not a, you're certainly not nodding your head to this music, but it also is, it's so kind of washed out by that, in my opinion. But you don't listen to all music the same exact way. Certainly. You don't uh, have one formula of listening. So when I when I listen to this album, I, I don't focus so much on the chords. I listen to how the the lyrics flow, and I, and I kind of, Take a visual approach to it more than like a, a you know musical finger picking drum beat music part of it. No, well, that's not even the point that I'm trying to make. Is that I need to have a rhythm or anything like that. But when there is no rhythm, part of what I like about hip hop is the way that a lyric or the cadence of words play off of a rhythm. They sort of play against each other, and this was not two elements playing against each other. This was sort of two elements that kind of washed together for me because it's always that super strummy guitar, finger picky, and then the melody is just kind of meandering along. And that's, granted, that's not a terrible modality for a song, but for basically an entire album, I was hoping for some more and some contrast. I think it leads to the phenomenon you talked about, Tom, of it getting a little tiresome. Which yeah. I definitely felt, you know, even though I do, I ultimately came away with a positive feeling. So I think these criticisms are valid. I think that the arrangements are a little underbaked. And it's not that surprising that his most famous song, Hallelujah, which is not on this record, is known as, as a cover, right? Mm -hmm. And became his most famous song by being a cover. Like, it feels like these songs are begging to be reinterpreted. And we're going to hear more about that in the history. But I, I just wanted to compliment what I think Leonard Cohen is doing and call back to Marty's comment about it being super visual. You know, the other, the alternate tweet I had started writing down was that his music reminds me of a David Lynch movie. It's undeniably atmospheric. It's a strange mix of beautiful and unsettling and all that equals definitely memorable and unique, but also I'm not sure I get it. 
I also am not a lyrics person either. It's not the first thing that I gravitate towards. So I have to like make a conscious, like voluntary choice to key in on those. All in all, I still don't think that it was great poetry in and of itself, to be honest. But I do think that he has a really great ability to sort of transport to like sort of drop you in to a place and you kind of feel like you're there and you, you know, it's like activating other senses in a, in a weird tacit way. So yeah, I'll give him that. I think that he creates worlds almost that you can kind of feel yourself being dropped into. I was hoping that Sisters of Mercy was going to be on the, the focus list because that the production on that, the choices they made sonically on that were very, to me, it was like, what is going on here? Like, why would you, It's to me, it sounded like a nightmarish, bizarre circus or like a medieval, I don't even know what, what was the vibe supposed to be? Yeah. And I'd never heard anything like that on an album, especially something that's so like, low energy and and i feel like the production overall like it was kind of like up and down and there was no like true flow to it it sounded like they had recorded it in pieces and kind of just like threw it all together almost like a you know a compilation album well josh you're mostly right and i think that's a great segue (laughs) to tell a little bit of the backstory of leonard cohen leading up to and including how this record actually got recorded so as was already alluded to This is ultimately a story about a midlife career change, and I found that element of it a little bit fascinating, but I think it leads to some of the flaws we talked about. So Leonard Cohen had a career already as a published poet, a reasonably well-respected poet. Where's those gigantic air quotes around career in poetry? We're going to get into it, but you have to understand it was a different time, right? But what was happening as the 50s changed into the 60s is youth culture shifted, right? And he has this important realization that poets don't make any fucking money anymore. Or maybe they never did, but they're not even a part of the hip zeitgeist like maybe they were in the 50s. So let's go back to the beginning of his life. He's born in Montreal in 1934 to a very well-off Jewish family. They basically lived in what was referred to as the Bel Air of Montreal. His mother was a Russian immigrant. His dad ran a high-end tailor clothing business. He often is quoted as saying Leonard is that he was born in a suit. Like he's never in casual clothes, which sort of fits, I think his aesthetic in a fedora, right? Exactly. (laughs) And he's quite dour. I don't know if you guys noticed from the the cover photo. Wait, the second I saw that cover photo, by the way, I also don't key that much in on covers. I just basked in the possibility that some kid picked this up in like the seventies off the rack at a record store thinking it was like the Godfather soundtrack. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. Because that is fucking Al Pacino on the cover. I don't, I don't care what anybody says. (laughs) Very Pacino esque. So he's an odd kid kind of from an early age. There was a story I, I picked up on in this memoir. I read about him where he was, he took one of his father's bow ties and sliced it open and wrote, what he says is his first piece of writing ever on a crumpled piece of paper, puts it in the bow tie, buries it in the backyard. Now he claims he has no memory of what he wrote. And in his words, he's been digging in the garden for years. Maybe that's all he's been doing. He's a weird kid. He's a weird kid. As a teenager, he gets into hypnotism and was like very serious about practicing from this hypnotism book that he has. And the, I'm guessing all in the pursuit of uh, hypnotizing ladies into having sexual <laughs> relations with him. You know, perhaps surprisingly to you guys, but he is quite a ladies man as well. So he's a good looking guy. 
I was not surprised by the fact that he was a ladies' man. It seems to go with his whole aesthetic. But the extent to which he was obsessed with women and sex kind of threw me off a little bit. I'm sure we'll get into that. So this memoir I read was talking about his time as a hypnotist. And I think he learned a lot about it. And I think it influenced his his musical career even. And so I have this quote from the hypnotism book, from the second chapter of this book, there's some sage advice that I think he applied consistently. It says, your features should be set firm and stern. Be quiet in all your actions. Let your voice grow lower, lower till just above a whisper. Pause a moment or two. You will fail if you try to hurry. I never thought about the intersection of hypnotism and this kind of music, but I think I thought that was an interesting <laughs> juxtaposition. Okay, so he's from a well-off family. He has music lessons, you know, he has piano lessons as a kid. He played the recorder. I think he played the clarinet in high school. But really, he has this lightning strike moment. He's walking around Montreal at age 15. He's browsing a bookstore and he opens up a book of poems by a guy called Gabriel Garcia Lorca. And he stops randomly on a poem, and it's it's this crazy moment in his life. It makes his hair stand on end. For context, Lorca is a famous Spanish poet. He was openly gay. He was an anti-fascist, and he ended up being executed by the nationalist militia in the mid-1930s. But this really kind of sets Leonard on a path of what he wants to do, right? So I feel like we can't tell the story of Leonard Cohen without apologies, because I'm going to have lots of quotes of things he said, because I do think he undeniably has a way with words. Poetry like this revealed something to Leonard. And in his own words, it revealed a landscape that you thought you walked alone on. When something was said in a certain kind of way, it seemed to embrace the cosmos. It's not just my heart, but every heart involved. And the loneliness dissolves. And you felt that you were this aching creature in the midst of an aching cosmos, and the ache was okay. In fact, it was the way that you embraced the sun and the moon. So clearly he has some kind of connection to this, to this ancient thing. And I know it's easy to make fun of poetry. It feels very antiquated. It feels very pretentious. I just think that's a very modern opinion, right? It's, it has been this thing that's been going on in human history for so, so long. And I think we should just, you know, take a moment to like accept that. Right? Listen, I, I don't have inherently a problem with poetry itself, but poets seem like they're insufferable assholes. And Leonard Cohen seems like, like me and Lenny could not go get beers. I would 20 minutes in and be like, what the <laughs> fuck are you talking about? Can you just say normal things like a normal person? He's a guy who declaims everything. He doesn't say things. He like makes statements. You're like, okay. Yeah, let it. me let me follow up on my thoughts on his him being a really unique voice and having this way with words, though, because I have this personal anecdote that always stuck with me. I don't know a lot of his music. You know, I'd heard some of the songs passingly over the years, but I'm definitely not familiar with the catalog. And one time a few years back, I was watching a TV show and the theme song chimes in and it's a woman singing. It's like a dark and brooding song, but it's a woman singing. I'd never heard the song before. I'm hundred percent sure. And it just in my head, I went, I bet that's a Leonard Cohen song. And I was, and I was right. I think that he has an unmistakable style to how he even endeavors to write. And I just think that's inherently impressive. You can't say that about that many people. I also think 
coming from a fairly religious family. The spiritual side of him probably is someone who's questioning, especially at a young age, questioning where he's coming from and searching possibly for answers. And you know, there's a lot of imagery in this in this album that kind of talks about like, you know, leaders and people followers and stuff like that. So I think there's this strong pull towards asking questions and searching. And he obviously has this the drive to like or had this passion for writing and to get all that out probably wasn't, you know, that's probably what was going on with him at the time. Yeah, absolutely. And the family was definitely very active in the Jewish faith. I believe his grandfather was a rabbi. I'm, I could be misremembering that. So I, I just to, for all intents and purposes, I'm Jewish and like he's of this line called the Kohen, who are basically the rabbis, like the, the priests, the high priests, all the way that a lineage down from Aaron, who was Moses's brother, who was the high priest back in biblical times. And so they were like kind of looked upon as like very religious, special family. So he comes from that lineage. It's hmm. a lot to live up to. Interesting, yeah. Like, I'm supposed to be a high priest and, like, a, you know, conduit to God? Okay, yeah. It's funny because he's also kind of, like, irreverent towards religion in in some of these songs in, in, in a way. You know, he kind of talks about, you know, Jesus is, like, a hypocrite and failure and kind of stuff like that. Isn't that know? common for folks who are grow up, like, immersed in religion? Oh, yeah. Like, oh, for sure. Oh, yeah. For sure. Yeah. Absolutely. I've always said the quickest way to make sure your kids are atheists is to send them to a religious school (laughs) afterwards. They're like, (laughs) yeah, "Yeah, I'm done with this shit. (laughs) But I think he sees and appreciates the power of writing from an early age, because I think that is a part of the Jewish tradition, right? Yeah. People who are studying the Torah and things like that. So He definitely has a voice. I mean, there's no question about that. He has a voice. He has... I like your your point earlier, Rob, about being able to kind of pick out one of his songs in a, you know, needle and haystack kind of thing. I, I think where I and and to address something you said earlier, I do think he has a way with words that 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 much is clear. I think where I where it just felt a little bit flat for me is that and I'm also I was an English major, so I I'm not like anti literature or anything. I just felt that when I learned of his career as a poet and how that led up to him being a musician. And there was just so much about his lyrics and that's really his thing. I just expected maybe something a little different or maybe something that like knocked my socks off a little bit more. I don't, maybe I don't know what I was expecting, but I, I think as I looked at it as words on paper and heard it voiced over pretty like boring instrumentation, I think the package, I was just left feeling like, I'm not sure I I get it, but there's still something there, though. Well, he's got the Bob Dylan thing going on, and this is where I think the the Bob Dylan comp makes a lot of sense. And, Rob, you've brought this up before. You listen to Bob Dylan's lyrics, and they're probably 75% just imagistic nonsense, and then he hits you with a really great line. And I think Leonard Cohen does the same stuff, where... As I'm listening to these songs and it's kind of rambling and boring and then it'll like slip in a really great line with really great imagery. And I'm like, ah, I got to give it to you. That's pretty good. All right. You kind of sucked me back in with that one line and then you're going to ramble a little bit more and they're going to hit me with another really good line in, you know, 20 seconds or something like that. They can't all be great lines. That that would in itself become boring. I just want to clarify my position on that topic of Bob Dylan. To me, that's like a setup and a punchline approach to writing. And I... I think the impressionistic painting pictures with your words often is really great as well. 
but it doesn't maybe have the same level of emotional impact as the punchline line. That's what I was trying to get across there. But ultimately, this is about a time and place. And I think one of the most interesting things about Leonard is that he is significantly older than his 60s peers. So it's it, again, it's about a time and place. So when he's 15, he goes to a be a camp counselor for a summer. And the head camp counselor is this like American socialist guy. And to hear Leonard tell it, socialists at that time were the only people who played guitar, basically. And by the way, socialist, it has a lot of different meanings throughout the years, but this was like supporting North Korea in the Korean War kind of socialist. Uh, so sorry, this is the early 50s, right? But ultimately, this guy becomes kind of a little guitar mentor for Leonard. He shows them this, he has this songbook of pro-union, pro-partisan songs. <laughs> Many of them are just like reworkings of old folk songs. And Leonard sets to studying this chord book very intently and kind of learns guitar via that over over the summer step one never let your chords ring out <laughs> <laughs> you know it, it brought to mind the idea of like a revolutionary songbook. do you guys are you guys familiar with the song bella chow have we talked about this on the podcast you you might know the song if you heard it, it came on my radar of a few years back also from a tv show they were singing it in italian which i think maybe is how it was originally written and it was funny because then my wife, who grew up outside of America, was like, oh, yeah, I know this song, but it's in Chinese. And I looked into it, and this song, which is a originated as a revolutionary song, like peasants rising up against an oppressive government type song, is the most translated song, most translated and recorded song, like in all of history. Hmm. There are versions in nearly every language on the planet. It's, it's quite interesting. But not English, because we're always the ones that they're fighting against. <laughs> it's a jam. You should check it out. But okay, so back in Montreal that fall, right, he's got a little bit of guitar knowledge with him, and he meets a Spanish guy playing flamenco guitar in the park. And Leonard doesn't really speak French. This guy doesn't speak English or French. So they somehow, through gesturing, agree to a guitar lesson. And this guy comes over to Leonard's like three times, shows him some really basic flamenco techniques, which Leonard practices incessantly and which I think you can still hear mm -hmm. are the basis of a lot of his playing. Now, interesting part of the anecdote, on the fourth lesson, the guy doesn't show up. Leonard you know, doesn't know why, doesn't hear from him. He calls around to the boarding house where he's staying. Turns out he committed suicide. Hmm. Ah, fun. So maybe this kid Leonard is a little bit of a bummer. It's unclear, but... <laughs> Are you saying it's his fault? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> I can't go back for another lesson. Jesus Christ, I can't do it. I just thought that was kind of rough. I love these, like, the details of Leonard Cohen's, the little snippets of his musical career, because it just takes so many odd turns. But like we said, the flamenco guitar playing kind of formed the basis. You can still hear that style on the record for sure. He ends up going to college at McGill, which is a big university in, in Montreal, and he forms a square dance band called the Buckskin Boys. All right. That's how old this was, that that was a viable <laughs> option to impress women. If you spit into an AI generator, come up with a band name for <laughs> that style of music, that tracks pretty, pretty yeah. well. So, you know, it's like through his teenage years, he's had these connections with music. He sees how music can can win over people and gain him influence and things like that. But really, his first career and the thing he he focuses the most on in college and beyond is poetry. At around 20, he meets a poet mentor, a guy called Irving Layton, who's around 20 years older than him. And they sit around and they study poetry and they write poetry and they go to poetry readings. And Leonard ends up publishing his first book of poetry in 1956. That's 10 years before this record comes out, by the way. 
It's called Let Us Compare Mythologies. And just for some context, that's the same year, 1956. It's the same year that Howl by Allen Ginsberg published. So poetry is kind of happening artistically. You know, the culture is changing fast, as we know, in America and, and perhaps other places. But the beats are really what's considered hip in youth culture. And so I just think that like frames it a little better. Now I should say the beats didn't exactly think Cohen was cool even then because (laughs) Leonard Cohen was using a much more traditional version of poetry with rhyming couplets and things like that. And a lot of these beat poets were, were breaking down those barriers and things like that. But rhymes, you know, that's (laughs) seriously gotta have what kind of weak ass poet (laughs) rhymes. Come on. I do want to just bring up one anecdote and I, I watched like a hour and a half long interview with Leonard Cohen on Canadian television. And this is maybe one of my own personal hangups here, but they talked about when he was a poet and when he was first starting as a poet and had graduated from college, he was still getting a $750 a year allowance from his parents to subsidize his career. And like that doesn't sound like a whole lot of money, but he also said that he rented a house for $114 a month. So they basically <laughs> were paying most of his way through life as he's trying to quote unquote make it as a poet. I don't know why that annoyed me, but it really did annoy me. And I We can't... all know those kids, you know, we all know those kids. Like, oh yeah, how, how are you? You know, you're 35 and you're still chasing the the musical dream and you seem to be not ever have a job you know it's like oh, okay. oh you live in portland marty that's probably your life oh that's like half yeah it's like half the people in portland i know you're yeah. just like damn how do you get you got a new car you don't even have a job yeah. <laughs> I, i'm not irritated by that as much although sometimes that does rankle me to an extent i think where i have a little bit of disbelief sometimes is when it comes to writing authentic music of course you have feelings and thoughts you know but i do find it hard to believe in someone who's summoning this darkness but is living a pretty cushy life it's almost like playing the blues so like, authentic, like authenticity kind if of if your life isn't yeah, like a dumpster yeah, yeah. fire are you really like playing the blues you know i mean there's also the the aspect of he might be one of those types of people who like wanted to get out of his lifestyle and get more into that grimy like earthy feel of like the lower class. I don't even know. But most of the people who were doing this and were like part of the beatnik movement and all that kind of stuff, and even later on, I feel like, you know, especially in the 60s folk scene, were people from, came from families with, with money or were not like, you know, oh, yeah. we had, had the ability to do this stuff. So I think this pretty much tracks with a lot of uh, what the eventual folk scene was going to be. Yeah, there's not a lot of sons of coal miners that are out there being poets those, those guys got fucking jobs but people who grew up and had the opportunity to go to college and all that stuff they're the ones who are maybe a little bit more focused on the literary bend i mean since you brought it up loretta lynn is the obvious example there right <laughs> yeah but uh, she was not a musician i think because she was like i have the music in me and i have to get it out i think she was like i can make some money doing this because otherwise my husband's going to continue to beat me very badly but he can't go on the face if i have to be on stage so interestingly that's pretty much where leonard was at well listen i just want to be i don't fault people for being born with money you don't get to control that and i think that i think that josh is right that a lot of people in that situation try to push away from it somehow some way and, you know, we can criticize the, the details, but I, I think that is what Leonard was trying to do. So 
we're kind of in the section of Leonard's life where he's artistically successful, but no real money's coming in because people aren't really buying books of poetry. He's a mild literary sensation in Canada. And to keep his inspiration up, he's on some kind of stipend. He's got, you know, book deals. He's working on a novel. He sets off to live a more interesting life, a more bohemian life. So he kind of moves around a lot in this period. He goes to London in the late 50s. Keep in mind, this is post-war, pre-Beatles London. So it's kind of a dark age for that city. From there, he goes to live on a small Greek island called Hydra, which has become like an artistic community of hippies. And at this point, he's like around 26. It's maybe 1960. He ends up meeting one of his muses there on on Hydra called Marianne, who's referenced on this album, who's married to a Scandinavian novelist at the time, but kind of unhappy. So she kicks up a relationship with Leonard. He publishes a novel. He publishes more books of poetry, including a volume called Flowers for Hitler, which unsurprisingly does not sell very well. <laughs> I, I did see that there was a controversy about that because he got a grant from the Canadian government to further his artistic endeavors. And even at the time, he wasn't very famous or anything like that, but people were still upset because it was like, you took a grant from the Canadian government and then moved to an isle, island in Greece to live with a Scandinavian model and be like, yeah, no, trust me, I'm right. Don't worry about it. Hey, here's flowers for Hitler. It's great. Yeah, where do I, I sign like, up for that? that? <laughs> I think I missed the auditions for that one. Yeah. But the bottom line is, right, Age 30 is approaching. He's getting critical acclaim. He's getting published, but he ain't getting paid. He's published two novels. He's published three volumes of poetry, but the culture is moving on, and his approach to making art is considered antiquated already. Really, it was considered antiquated when he started, as, as we mentioned. So he ends up hanging out in New York. He thinks he's just going to pass through there, but he hears Bob Dylan playing in a cafe in Greenwich Village and starts thinking, huh, maybe... I could turn these poems into songs and make a record. Maybe I could be the Canadian Bob Dylan. Records sell, right? Simple plan. So, and it actually turns out to be quite a simple plan. He's on the scene. He starts asking around. He, like, his name kind of has some cachet, right? He shows up at Max's Kansas City, which is a very hip bar in New York at the time. And Lou Reed apparently recognizes him at the bar. He goes, hey, I'd say, hey, are you Al Pacino? Have you? And they talk. And he basically, he gets brought into this whole Andy Warhol gang in New York, like right away. I think my understanding is this is like one of the first couple nights he's even hanging out in New York. He meets Nico. He, of course, falls in love with her. They talk about <laughs> her maybe recording one of his songs for her debut album. That doesn't actually happen. but And then pretty quickly, a friend connects him with a singer called Judy Collins. And this is... Definitely the most fateful meeting of Leonard's life. Now, Judy Collins is a singer with a recording contract who doesn't write songs at this point. So she's always on the lookout for, for good songs, for new songs. And reminder to the listeners, this is the same Judy Collins who later was in a relationship with Stephen Stills and about whom the song Sweet Judy Blue Eyes is written, by the way. But that comes a little later. Some producer, manager, hooks the two of them up. Leonard goes over there. He plays her the song Suzanne that he has. He's very coy about it. He's like, is this a song? I, I don't know. Judy's like, it's a song, yeah, and I'm recording it tomorrow. And she does, <laughs> and it's a hit. The, the record that Judy Collins puts out sells like 500,000 copies. And this is in, this is in 1966. So this kind of changes the trajectory of everything. Let's play a quick clip of the Judy Collins version of the song Suzanne.
Suzanne takes you down to a place by the river. You can hear the boats go by. You can spend the night forever. And you know that she's half crazy. That's why you want to be there. And she feeds you tea and oranges that come all the way from China. And just when you want to tell her that you have no love to give her, she gets you on her wavelength and lets the river answer that you've always been her lover. So speaking of luck and being born with a silver spoon, what's crazy is that he literally, once he decides to focus on music, he's only in New York for two months before he finds one of his songs on a hit record. That is some fast turnaround right there. Are you going to touch on his first performance of Suzanne with Judy Collins? Because that yes. to me was like, I wanted to punch him in the face. <laughs> I just, I couldn't, I couldn't stand it sorry <laughs> well to harken back to what i think josh said earlier that a lot of this feels very tentative right he's in the midst of this career change he's not sure what he wants to do he's not sure if he really is a singer or a performer or a songwriter and he kind of is on the fence and i think you can hear that both in the recording you can hear that in the story of how long it took to record which we're going to get to and you can hear it in this story of his first american performance where judy collins the the record is a hit people are they, they're they're liking it. They're hearing it. They don't necessarily know who Leonard Cohen is, but then they you know they look at the liner notes. They see his name. He's kind of on the tip of people's tongues, right? But no one has seen him yet. And she invites him on stage with her to sing it at some big show in New York. He's shaking. He's so nervous. He sort of fumbles through the beginning of the song. Then he stops in the middle, walks off stage, like pretty much the worst thing that could possibly happen to a performer. The biggest embarrassment you could you could possibly have happened to you claiming he never wants to be a performer. She does eventually coax him back on stage and they kind of finish the song as a duet, but you know, it, his, his debut does not go very well. Well, according to Judy Collins, the crowd went nuts. Like when he walked off stage, they were like, Oh, so avant-garde. Oh, just so interesting. <laughs> like it's like an Andy Kaufman bit yeah. or something. <laughs> and I was just like, oh my God, how do you fall ass backwards into failing as the worst you can on stage? And it turns out to be like very well received. That annoyed the hell out of me. It's the anti, the antithesis of Bob Dylan goes electric, right? Like, he, you know, instead of Bob Dylan standing there defiantly saying, you know, screw you guys, I'm playing this way. He's just like, I can't do this, leaves. And they're like, they're they're cheering him for leaving. And, 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 yeah. and you know, suddenly he's a star. <sighs> but this, this is like classic New York 60s hipster story, right? He couldn't have... He couldn't have game planned this better. I don't know. I don't know how much strategy went into this, but he's already been given the kiss of acceptance by Andy Warhol. And you know what I mean? Once you have that kind of badge of honor on you and Lou Reed says you're cool and Nico says you're cool, then suddenly everyone wants a piece of you, right? I will give him this. There were a lot of people who got blessed into the Andy Warhol circle 
who were just like, well, now my career is like cocaine and fucking, and that's all I'm going to do. I'm not <laughs> actually going to have any artistic output. I'm just going to be super pretentious and do drugs and have sex. At least he had an output and was like, no, I think I'm going to continue to make music and do some stuff that has some validity down the line and not just run through the party. Which I feel like a lot of people did just get sucked into the party. Like, like who? Who do you know? Who do you know that hung out with Andy Warhol? That that I mean, he hung out with tons of other artists and musicians and models and photographers and filmmakers and yes. Okay, I just don't know who you're. I just don't know who you're referring to. I feel like that's all. Uh, well, he hung what out I'm referring with. to are the people who never did anything and just became like club kids. Oh. You know, their, their entire thing was like, "I'm a club kid." Well, a club kid just means you go to parties and have sex and you know, hang out in various New York establishments. So you're saying he had good uh, work-life balance? Is that yeah, what you're saying? Yeah, good know, work-life he... balance. <laughs> to, to be clear, even though he looks like your dad's accountant, he did his fair share of drugs, speed, mandrax, you name it. He was he was into the party scene as well. But he did continue working, it's true. At this point, right, he's advised to make some rough demos of his songs, both to help court a label deal and also to have publishing sorted out and an interesting connection I, I saw is that one of the copies of the demos went off to Garth Hudson of the band to transcribe them and make the charts <laughs> for, for publishing. <laughs> Apparently he was still taking these side gigs like this at the time. Still charging 40 bucks a month to his uh, bandmates <laughs> to get lessons. <laughs> exactly. But another copy luckily lands with John Hammond at Columbia. So April 26th, 1967, he gets signed to Columbia records by the legendary John Hammond who this guy, like we could do a whole show about John Hammond. He's credited with discovering major artists across several decades. Billie Holiday, Bob Dylan, Bruce Springsteen, Aretha Franklin, Stevie Ray Vaughan. Just to give you an idea. Interesting guy who's been behind the music business for a long time. Leonard Cohen gets a $2,000 advance. And they set about trying to make his debut record songs of Leonard Cohen. So now, finally, we're at the recording phase. So just curious, John Hammond... When he is helping him get his record contract, does he already have the idea for Jurassic Park in mind? Or does that come later down the line? He, he just finished his first series of organs, and then he met. Okay. Then he met uh, yes. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk recording, and then we're going we're gonna to get to the songs soon. So this recording takes place from May to November of 1967. So kind of a long time, given how stripped down the production is when you really think about it. Now... It started out with John Hammond just pairing him with a single accompanist, a bass player called Willie Ruff, who had played with Count Basie and Dizzy Gillespie, really, really decorated player. And Leonard actually got along really well with the guy. He said he complimented his guitar playing really intuitively, and he was a rare musician who played selflessly. And then over time, I, I guess that was the goal was to help work out the formats and the basis of the arrangements. And they brought in a bunch more studio killers and tried rock versions of the songs and Leonard was like super embarrassed about how unsophisticated he was musically speaking. And he doesn't sound like he really knew what he wanted. And him and John Hammond f kind of fought about that. Leonard struggled to communicate in general. I think of what he, what his vision was. He knew what he didn't want, but that's kind of all he could do. A weird detail that I read is that Leonard felt most comfortable playing in front of a full length mirror. So they had one brought into the studio it's a strange little quirk. It's almost wholesome in its like, you know, teenage bedroom tennis racket kind of vibe. I feel like I read it was easy for him to see his like left hand chord formations mm. when looking at himself in the in the mirror, but 
Who knows? It seems like he just practiced like that as a kid for whatever reason. But you would think that would lead to more confidence as a performer. But it didn't seem to do that. Anyway, it sounds like the last thing I would want to do while recording music. So, but it got really bad. Leonard nearly swore off the entire process. He said it came down to just, can I finish it? Not, can it be perfect? Not, can it be immortal? Not even, can it be good? Just like, can it be over with? (laughs) They tried a bunch of things. They tried changing studio locations. They ended up at one point at a converted Armenian Orthodox church where Kind of Blue was recorded, the Miles Davis record. But it's still challenging, and Leonard's not satisfied. And my take from kind of reading between the lines here is that we ended up with something on the tape that is a lot closer to John Hammond's vision, because there's this during this period he was arguing for simplicity, that simplicity was Leonard's biggest asset, whereas Leonard I think simply could not conceive that his voice alone would sell any records. So he's kind of grasping at like production tricks, but he, to disguise his inherently non-commercial voice in his mind, but he doesn't really know how production tricks work. And, you know, they're just kind of floundering, right? Now, maybe I misread, because I I read that one of the producers, John Simon, connection to the band who produced the band's second album, who did a bunch of other stuff, was in on one of the songs and wanted more, and that Leonard Cohen wanted less um, and wanted things stripped down. And, like, he wanted, like, Simon wanted, like, you know, drums and and more guitars, and, and they fought about that. Yeah, so this is what's weird. So basically, they take a break from the sessions because one, it's going so poorly. And two, John Hammond kind of falls sick. And this is where Leonard manages to squeeze in a quick love affair with Joni Mitchell. And I <laughs> wonder if perhaps she... Just toss that in there for good measure. <laughs> yeah. This is a total speculation, but I wonder if she, with her equally unconventional but amazing voice, maybe helps give him some confidence. I'm not sure. They only take a break for like six weeks. They restart the sessions again in October with a brand new producer. The guy that Josh just mentioned, a guy called John Simon. His big credit at the time was for the song Red Rubber Ball. The band Hmm. that recorded that is called The Circle, although Circle is spelled weird. But more interestingly, the song was written by Paul Simon because he, he gave it to the band when they were opening for Simon and Garfunkel. So anyway, this is a minor hit. And I should mention that John Simon, the producer, Paul Simon are not related, but... Check out Red Rubber Ball. It's kind of a cool song. But they have the same last name. In case you're wondering. <laughs> they do have the same last name, yeah. So they argue about tons of things. Like Leonard ends up hiring a random band he sees at a club one night called Kaleidoscope. They're on some of the tracks. John Simon, you're right, Josh. Like he wanted more orchestration and uh, bells and whistles. He adds his girlfriend's voice to the mix. And this all happens mostly after Leonard actually leaves the studio. So when Leonard first hears... The, the original final mix, he is very upset with it. They quarrel over it. Leonard kind of wins back some of his vision, which I'm saying is really John Hammond's vision. Like, it just doesn't seem like Leonard ever really knew quite what he wanted, but maybe he reverted to the guy he trusted a little more, John Hammond. And it stayed somewhere in, in between, right? I should mention that, sadly, Leonard's passed away now, but he did loudly threaten to kill himself if the record didn't turn out well. Hmm. So let's uh, hope he doesn't hear any of this podcast (laughs) and come back to haunt us. Okay, so finally the dang thing gets released, December 27th, 1967. So it's basically a Christmas record, guys. And uh, I thought I would just read you a couple quick, quick pieces of reviews from when it came out. Rolling Stone wrote, I don't think I could ever tolerate all of it. Three brilliant songs, one good one, three qualified bummers, and three are flaming shits. <laughs> I think we should invite this reviewer onto the show. Yeah, yeah, I like it. 
the New York Times uh, wrote that Leonard Cohen sounds like a sad man cashing in on self-pity and adolescent loneliness. <laughs> on point again. Uh, so, I know many of those people, but the, the yeah. cashing out part hasn't. <laughs> <laughs> now, it was a little better received in the UK. But speaking of being better received, on to our favorite segment here, By the Numbers. Let's do Leonard Cohen, songs of Leonard Cohen, By the Numbers. First number I want to throw out there is 33. We've already alluded to it, but that is the age that Leonard was when this his first album came out, which in the culture of 1960s coolness, it may as well have been 75. He was as old <laughs> as old can be. And, you know, that said, though, the cover really leans into that element. It looks like your grandfather's passport photo. <laughs> it looks so, like he's about to give you a lecture. Or a most wanted poster or something like that, you know. Yeah. For tax evasion? <laughs> Definitely. Definitely. Next number I want to throw out to you guys is 83. That's the highest chart position this album ever saw in the U.S. It did chart a bit higher in the U.K. and surprisingly in the Netherlands. And it eventually, after long last, sold 500,000 copies. So it was kind of a, a real sleeper hit. He's way more popular in Europe, though, right? Like, way yes. more popular in Europe. I, I, I don't think this will be one of your by the numbers, but I saw something that in the 80s he played a show in Iceland where 5% of the nation's population came to the show. Damn. That's fucking gigantic. Jesus. I mean, that might have only been 26,000 people or something in Iceland <laughs> at the time, but it's still huge. Like, that's they just played at the high school gymnasium. Yeah. <laughs> right. It was also the only event going on in Iceland that night. <laughs> that actually is probably very accurate, yes. <laughs> okay, the next number I want to throw out is the number four. That's the number of albums that Leonard Cohen has on Robert Dimery's list including his first three albums in a row. I'm not sure anyone else has such a track record, especially at the outset of their career. And I got to say, I can't imagine it's deserved. I feel like it's over-indexed on Leonard Cohen. <laughs> Isn't for Ze sure. Aren't the first four Zeppelin albums on there? Or is number three not on the list? You're right. The first four Zeppelin albums are on there. Good call. But that's also over-indexed on Zeppelin, by the way. <laughs> Too yeah, much yeah. Zeppelin. That, that one's maybe slightly more debatable. I feel like there's sometimes this like retrospective thing that happens where in the moment, the lack of commercial success is no surprise like this. There's no pop accessibility whatsoever on any of this. I'm always surprised at what later becomes the thing that critics love. As far as being the first three albums, though, I didn't really like dig into all of them. But am I correct that they sort of like hang together in a certain way or that they're considered part of one era of his sort of songwriting before he gets a little bit more melodic or is, is that something that you have? He has three that are like pretty stripped down and then he has the big Phil Spector album, which, which, uh, you know, death of a lady's death man. of a lady's man. Yeah. Yeah. And I imagine I saw that when he was making that album, he and Phil Spector were completely at odds as to how he wanted it to sound. And he said at the end of the day, when the recording day would be over, Phil Spector would have armed security guards come in and take the master tapes. <laughs> and he was like, I was basically left in a position where if I wanted to have any creative input, I had to like fight people to actually get the master tapes so that I could, you know, put my own imprint on the album. Which it I doesn't sound like Phil Spector at all. No, no. no yeah, yeah. Cut, kind, cuddly yeah. Phil Spector, I know. <laughs> Let's finish out the segment by the numbers. Last number I want to throw out to you guys is... Countless, that's the number of times Leonard does not quite hit the note he was aiming for, but it doesn't matter, I guess, because, you know, art. 
And speaking of striving ever so hard for something and still missing the mark consistently, we love doing this podcast, guys. We love that you love listening to it. We appreciate everything, all the emails, all the five-star reviews, the Patreon subscribers, the merch store purchases. We've recently been working on some bonus show stuff over at Patreon. You can go check that out. Even if you don't want to subscribe right now, you can take a closer look at what we've been doing and the community of nerds, music nerds, we were building together. So thank you for everything. That is our segue, guys, to starting to talk about some of these songs. You guys ready? Let's go. So the first song, we're going to just revisit this one, drop it in at another spot. Not sure if you'll be able to tell. It's called Suzanne. And Jesus was a sailor when he walked upon the water. And he spent a long time watching from his lonely wooden tower. And when he knew for certain only drowning men could see him, he said, all men will be sailors then until the sea shall free them. But he himself was broken long before the sky would open, forsaken, almost human. He sank beneath your wisdom like a stone. say as my first exposure to leonard cohen i love this song it's beautiful it was haunting and the thing that made me appreciate it less as time went by is the fact that a lot of the other songs sounded like it but i'm trying not to let that take away from my experience because i do think that there's some really great imagery in here the line that he continually revisits is you've touched her perfect body with your mind and at different points in the week I kept thinking about how that is like the greatest encapsulation of Leonard Cohen because it is at once beautiful and imagistic and also really creepy and that's kind of like <laughs> exactly where he lives yeah it's kind, of, it's kind of like a love song but not quite it's more like kind of like a tribute I guess it kind of walks a, a, a weird line between friendship and crushing or maybe a fling. And then there's kind of like the weird Jesus comparison that I think he's trying to make, which is like this person that's a human that I'm friends with is kind of more pure than this thing that we all are taught to look up to or something like that. See, I, I interpreted it differently. Like I, when I was listening to it closely, it sounded more like he could have been talking and kind of kind of questioning some people's uh, motives and like talking about how other people kind of lead people down these paths because they're so beautiful and you've, you know, touched this person and now they're following you. And then he's talking about like kind of, you know, this, it came to me like, again, I'm taking it from a point of view of, of a Jew, right? Like that it sounded like a woman who is converting a non-Christian to being a Christian after he falls in love. It felt like the rest, a bunch of the rest of the album had that theme of like, you're following somebody and you're you're not sure why and you're questioning all this stuff, but you keep these people in power kind of like taking advantage of you all. That's what you get with like very strange lyrics. <laughs> yeah. well, and also just good poetry. Good poetry is at its best open to multiple interpretations. It is not super straightforward. You can read a lot into it and you can 
bring your own state of mind and mentality to the lyrics and still mean something to you. So I do think that this song is very successful lyrically. There's not a whole lot else going on besides the lyrics in the song, so it's successful in that in that way. Well, at least it has I, I wouldn't go as so far as to say it has a melody per se, but it does it's easy listening. It's nice. It's very pretty. I kind of made the mistake. I've talked about this before about like, you know, where you listen to something and what it does to your mind where I make the mistake. And I did it with this one of my first spin being in the car. And I was just like, what is this? Like listening through car speakers. (laughs) So I sort of biased myself artificially. And then when I did put this back on with headphones on, gave it a proper listen, I was like, Oh yeah, yeah. Nothing crazy here. Nothing you know, mind blowing, but very beautiful song. I will say, I think that this has his melody. He has kind of one melody that he sort of does in a lot of these songs. And it's very much a like kind of go up and then come down and then we go up and then we come down. He, he does that a whole bunch. And he's not a talented singer. No, and I think no. the, I think the dis distinction like Bob Dylan and him might get compared for both not having beautiful voices, but a distinction would be that Bob Dylan hits notes correctly. And I think Leonard Cohen struggles a lot more with that. And, and great phrasing. And I was going to actually kind of follow up what Tom was saying is if you compare his version versus Judy Collins version, she sings it straight and, and, and kind of, there's no affectation. There's none of the subtlety. And, and one of the, when I was listening to this song with, with headphones on, when he says, and she feeds you tea and oranges, he kind of like does this weird like giggle thing that it's like very subtle, but I just kind of love it. I kept replaying it over and over and over again. And, and in the Judy Collins version, it's just very kind of, she just kind of sings it. And there's no real emotion. There's no real, it doesn't really connect with me in the same way as, as when Leonard sings it. I think that's fair. He's, he's treating it a little more like a poetry reading. It's a little more dramatic, right? The one thing I came away with was like, this sounds like, a 60s folk song. It sounds like a quintessential 60s folk song. You have to wonder, when you listen to the Judy Collins version, which was recorded earlier, is this the the original way he in, wanted it? Or did he kind of hear, you know, or in the producers hear like how Judy Collins recorded and kind of make changes to kind of give it something, you know, different and still... It's kind of interesting that when you record your song after a cover comes out, like I don't know how many people sure. have ha- done that and been successful with, with it. I think that I have a little information on that, right? But this is one where Leonard and his producer, John Simon, argued a lot, and it's one of the last songs they f- they finished. Mm-hmm. And John Simon, the producer, wanted drums. He wanted syncopation. Leonard claims he was basically against drums at all on the record, although they do appear, you know, so I, again, my takeaway is that Leonard really didn't know what he wanted, but he probably trended more towards stripped down approach. But you're right, the Judy Collins version could not have helped but sort of pollute their mind. I Two other little interesting anecdotes about this one. So one is that Martin Sharp, who is the guy who did the cover art for Disraeli Gears, the Cream album, and is also credited with writing the lyrics to the Cream song, Tale of Brave Ulysses. Great Very song. purposefully wrote those lyrics to the tune of this song. Hmm. Wow. And then Clapton helped change it up a bit, and I guess write some new chords. But Which proves that old thing about Thelonious Monk saying, just take an existing song, change the chords, and then change the melody. Now you got a new song. <laughs> <laughs> the other one I wanted to mention, and she does appear a few times, is John Simon's girlfriend at the time provides backing vocals on this. Her name is Nancy Pretty, 
and and she is the mother of actress Christina Applegate from Don't Tell Mom Whoa. the Babysitter's Dead. Oh, all right. I think it's a great song. I think it's a great idea to put it first. I mean, obviously it was already a hit. It was kind of road tested, but it's a good, it's one of his more beautiful efforts, I believe, lyrically and kind of internally consistent. So as a mission statement for a song, I think it's perfect. It was definitely his most well-known song for a long time until Hallelujah, particularly until the cover version of Hallelujah came out, I think much later. So I think it's great. I think it's one of the more successful ones, but I sort of agree with the criticism that a lot of the other stuff sounds like it and it somewhat diminishes it. But I think this is probably the most successful song overall. Well, it's interesting to go back to what Rob was saying about how it sounds similar, that this was the last song recorded. And so it's kind of interesting that this probably sounded like everything else. And, you know, to put it at the top, that's it's, it's kind of an interesting dichotomy going on there. But I do think it was one of the first songs written. And actually, you guys were talking about what it what its meaning was. And I wanted to mention that I do there is there was a real Suzanne. He did not have a love affair with her. And this was written based on, you know, some of the scenes he's writing about are just things that actually happen. But it's someone he kind of had a brief encounter with. I think she was she was some kind of artist. I can't quite remember. But he didn't know her for very long. They didn't sleep together or anything like that. But she kind of inspired him. And then interestingly, he later married a different woman called Suzanne, which I found confusing <laughs> when I was looking through the history. But she probably hated the song. <laughs> She's like, that bitch. She liked it too much. <laughs> yeah. right. kind of he was crazy. like, no, I, I wrote it about you. And by the way, when, he, when he's recording this and this is getting released and it's getting airplay, he's still dating the Scandinavian model girlfriend called Marianne. So, you know, it's got to lead to some uncomfortable conversations. So, Rob, I, I want to point out for this week, I had a very difficult time. I usually like to play the game of like, what's the low light? Like, when somebody hands me the five songs we're going to talk about, I'm like, okay, what's their least favorite song? This is the only one that I knew was not going to be your least favorite song, but of the rest of them, I really don't know what your least favorite song is going to be. Yeah. I mean, I'll tell you, but it wasn't the easiest choice, to be honest. All right. But okay, let's keep it rolling to a song called Master Song. I believe that you heard your master sing When I was sick in bed I suppose that he told you everything That I keep locked away in my head Your master took you traveling Well, at least that's what you said And now do you come back to bring your prisoner wine and bread this song's pretty pretty dark and also this is a song that that kind of inspired my like kind of visual there's a weird visual component to this song it's kind of fucked up it has no real chorus it's kind of rambling kind of just goes on and on and on that's a good thing I think so. To me, it's just really, I just like original. It just seems real original to me. I think this is my favorite song. I, I would agree. I think it's got this really interesting, like, chromatic chord thing. I think it's like a B flat to an A minor, kind of relentlessly throughout the song. And yeah, the imagery is just so strange but evocative. It feels like a fairy tale, like some hunchback is singing to you about some scenario in a castle tower. It's weird. I actually want to give a lot of credit to John Simon on the production of this song. 
I really think that the production is quite tasty on the song. The little string totally. swells. There's an electric guitar that is just kind of hitting dead notes, and it's. It might be my favorite part of the album. It's just that little electric guitar in the background kind of hitting dead notes on the second verse. It's It did a lot with not a whole lot to work with from the source material because, like you said, it's just two chords just hammered home the entire time. But it really spices it up a whole lot. So props to John Simon. If, the, if Leonard and John were fighting over that, John was right. Way to go. No, I took note of that, too, that the production touches really elevate the song here and I think did a good thing. What is the thing that comes in at 206? Because it kind of sounds like an electric guitar, but I couldn't find a credit for an electric guitar. And he took you up in his airplane, which he flew without any hands. And you cruised above the ribbons of rain that drove the crowd from the stands. Then he killed the lights. That's abs. That is absolutely an electric guitar because he does okay. the dead strings, and then there's like a super like tremolo sound on yeah, the, the tremolo guitar. thing. Yeah, that's an electric guitar. And there's some vague credit about various Middle Eastern instruments, so there, there's definitely <laughs> some weird stuff hidden on these tracks. But yeah, I, I agree, it was very tasty. It kind of evoked some sort of, um, in my mind, one of those like weird like sci-fi, not steampunk, but like kind of like that medieval sci-fi feeling of like a master, and then like this. It has this this plot line, and then there's that plot twist at the end. It's like, oh, I actually taught your master, and like this, the guy's complaining about the the master, you know, treating this person so poorly, and then like you know the plot is, oh, well, I actually taught your master. I don't know. Again, I'm not a lyrics guy, and while the melody wasn't like that boring it to bring me into the story it was it, it, he did a great job you know ev- evoking this this narrative for this song and definitely takes me a few listens to get through uh, the lyrics at times but uh, the more i listened to it the more i enjoyed hearing what he was was singing about and kind of brought me into this world that he was creating i got a little scared when i first listened to the song because i saw that it was 6 minutes and then when I realized like a minute and a half in that it really wasn't going to change much from that, I really became a bit anxious, but I did find myself towards the end feeling like it did. It was a slow burn. It was like a slow build into something cool and unique, you know, nothing resembling like a climax or anything or peak or anything like that. But I think it, it did have like a little bit of a momentum to it that that i found nice on the whole it listen it's five minutes and 55 seconds and it is every second of those five minutes and 55 seconds it is unrelenting but i do think it's very successful but it is quite long for what there is to work with i read this internet breakdown where they suggested that this song is about the holy trinity with the master being jesus who's kind of usurped the prisoner being god Hmm. the father and that the audience he's speaking to is the Holy spirit. I thought that gave it a really interesting spin. I'm sure if you asked Leonard Cohen, he'd be like, uh, yeah, sure. Yeah, that's what I was writing about. <laughs> yeah, let's Definitely. go with that. Yeah. Let's go with that. Poetry, baby. Whatever Lou Reed thinks it is, is what it's about. <laughs> Pass me that heroin. Okay. Let's keep it rolling along to the stranger song. It's true that all the men you knew were dealers who said they were through with dealing every time you gave them shelter. I know that kind of man. It's hard to hold the hand of anyone who's reaching for the sky just to surrender. Who 
was reaching for the sky just to surrender And then sweeping up the jokers that he left behind You find he did not leave you very much, not even laughter Like any dealer, he was watching for the card That is so high and wild, he'll never need to deal another He was just some Joseph looking for a manger. He was just some Joseph looking for a manger. You know, for a wordsmith, he didn't work really hard on a lot of these titles. <laughs> I gotta say. <laughs> this is like what I name my riffs in like my notes app. Like, ooh, stranger song, master song. <laughs> this was this song irritated me because I felt like this I made the point earlier of which Rob, you had a nice snarky retort to about, you know, just putting poetry over guitar and, and that constitutes a song. I feel like he's literally just talking in this song. I didn't feel like there was any vibe to the, the delivery, the vocal delivery. It's just, it seems very like rote, almost like you just put a soundtrack under a speech or it's just what it kind of, how it came off to me. No, definitely flat delivery absolutely flat on his delivery in this one but i will say i think some of my favorite lines in the album are on this song i really like that it's hard to hold the hand of anyone who is reaching for the sky just to surrender like that's a i don't that's a great line i like that a lot also the opening the opening line just how he comes right in it's true that all the men you know were dealers who said they were through with dealing it just comes like right in with like there's no real it just the song just starts and then it just goes it's an excellent example of his lyric writing. And so I just maybe I just need to clarify that I think although objectively it is delivered a little flatly, I think that what he's capable of doing is touching some point in your brain or in your heart with these lines. I found myself feeling that again and again like, oh, that's like I don't know if it's just the fact that the line is unintelligible. Like, I don't know exactly what he means. It creates an image, but it always evokes consistently he's able to evoke feeling and i think that is impressive in and of itself it's interesting also there's an, it's like another jesus uh, you know illusion with joseph looking for a manger right i'm not sure exactly what that means is he searching for the place for his child to be born or for a safe place? i don't even know it is i think again the lyrics that he's working with paints an interesting picture an interesting story you know some of the lines are it's it's, it's repetitive at times again i had to listen to this several times to get immersed into it but once you get immersed into it 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 does create kind of a world that you can you know feel yourself in and, and and follow the story at times it does like i you know i alluded to in my tweet that it's almost like a dream like these songs are very dreamlike because you're not sure what's going on and there's somewhat of a plot and i think this is a good example of it you know how he's like the stranger is not a stranger you know that, that kind of stuff what is poetry it's attempting to touch into or tap into the unconscious in some way right. and it's not intended to be easily interpretable. That would make it bad poetry, right. I would say. So I, I'll i just say before we move on, because we're running a little long here, that these three songs we just went through, to me, they are the Leonard Cohen sound, at least in my mind. I know he went through some other phases, and we're going to talk about some songs that sound a little different. But this is like the raw, uncut Leonard Cohen, and I do think it's a good showcase for his style, even if it maybe is a little samey. Okay, let's move on to the next song, So Long, Marianne. The one that has drums in it. Come over to the window, my 
dollar I'd like to try to read your palm I used to think I was some kind of gypsy boy Before I let you take me home Now so long, Marilyn It's time we began My note is good. Good song, shitty drums. <laughs> <laughs> the drums, the whole rhythm section is a little too busy for me. I can tell that the bass player, like when the drums aren't in, the bass player is like gamely trying to keep a rhythm. They're they're trying to add that rhythm that was not present for so many of the songs, as Tom mentioned. Right. Speaking of the bass part, did anyone notice and? I couldn't tell if this happened twice or just once at around the two minute mark. It sounds like everything else changes, but the bass doesn't. And it really sounds very dissonant. And like, it, it sounds like a mistake. We met when we were almost young. Deep in the green lilac pond. It's jazz, baby. <laughs> it, it sounded like, uh, <laughs> <laughs> too obvious to be a like a flub or a mistake but i actually really did like this song maybe i'm just a sucker for production values and you know <laughs> for melodies or me- yeah, you know, song. a little ear candy <laughs> is, no i get it and this is one of the more popular or most played songs on the right this most reminds me of a bob dylan song this has it ain't me babe kind of vibes it you know what josh said that suzanne was a classic 60s folk song to me this sits the easiest with the other songs i think of as from the 60s. or like simon and garfunkel yeah i think it, totally it's, it, it's definitely more of a pop song right. it's like they, they took the, the bridge over troubled yeah. water orchestra and threw them at leonard cohen i think a big part of the reason why this sounds more like a pop song though is because he is actually trying to push and reach for notes yeah which is a facet of singing that (laughs) connects you to the emoting and there's so little emoting on the rest of the album but he's really actually singing on this one and i know he doesn't have a great voice but your voice can be charming even when you don't hit notes as long as you're putting emotion out there and there's like a real melody. I, I dug this song a yeah. lot, Alan. Actually, I thought that this was one of the better songs on the yeah. album. I wrote down my notes. It was like, good song. You know, going back to some of the instrumentals, I said, sounds like a Ren Fair performance. Like, it sounded like you were in the middle of a Renaissance <laughs> fair. Like this. But it was like jubilant. Oh, this is a, a, a breath of fresh air. That this is actually a happy song. Like, it sounds like there's, there's like some festive. euphoria going. Yeah, it's festive. Exactly. Yeah. You're chugging a, a flagon of mead. Yeah. Right, or, yeah. yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of potential for it to have been a hit song too i feel like it has that like melody like pop feel and i i actually listened to a cover a couple covers of the song and john kale i think he covered it with suzanne vega for some compilation he kind of like rocks it out a little bit more because you know he's from the velvet underground so he has that that kind of similar vibe it kind of shows that there's bones here that you could have turned this into something much bigger not to say it should have been but it has the like 
the structure and the the base of being what could have been a pretty massive hit. Yeah, this is definitely more on the commercial track. The, the one thing I wanted to point out was they layered the women singing in after he left the studio. And you can kind of hear in his first version of the chorus that he is very purposefully kind of leaving a lot of empty space in the singing lines. But it gives you the feeling by the end of it that he's just sort of half interested in singing along because <laughs> the women are like filling in all the spaces. <laughs> That's a good he's point. Occasionally piping up on the mic. So long, it's time we began to laugh and cry. And laugh about it all again. Okay, let's move it along here. We're running long. Thanks for sticking in there. Last song we're going to talk about, That's No Way to Say Goodbye. I love you in the morning Our kisses deep and warm Your hair upon the pillow Like a sleepy golden storm Yes, many love before us I know that we are not new In city and in forest They smiled like me and you But now it's come to distances And both of us must try Your eyes are soft with sorrow Hey, that's no way to say goodbye. All right, all right, Rob. Rob, I think you and I are on the same, uh, maybe on the same wavelength for this album. So I'm going to go ahead and say this is your low point in the album. Yeah, it is. I, I think it, it didn't. It didn't really come across to me. It's like Suzanne Part Two. That's not quite as good. Kind of. It feels very traditionally 60s. Doesn't feel like it has his real mark on it. There's a, it, it feels like title first songwriting, which again, I'm not against because he's got a good title. He's got a good hook line, but I don't think he built around it successfully. There's that mouth harp, jaw harp, whatever that thing's called. That sounds like a didgeridoo. That thing sucks. Never put that on any recording. See, I liked a lot of the the, the fun stuff that was going on with the production and, and all the extra stuff. I Again, I don't know. You guys are much better at picking this stuff out than I am. The use of the electric guitar, is there, and there's like a banjo in there, and then how they kind of use like a pick across guitar strings. I thought that kind of stuff was really interesting and kind of made the song enjoyable for me at least you know it's i'm more of a music type person it kind of grabbed me mu- melodically and musically rather than uh, focusing on the lyrics oh i really i really hated his melody in the song i really think that that kind of da, 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 kind of descend melody just it should have been better in his range and he wasn't hitting the notes very well and it, it came across as really boring and i absolutely despise the backups in the song I cannot stand the backup vocals. They seem so terribly tacked on, and they're not adding much to it. And I forget even the word that the they're saying, but it's basically just like they just say. Hey, I think it's hey. I think it's just like hey, <laughs> hey, yeah, hey, yeah. Well, they would fit in today's indie rock scene. Hey. <laughs> this would would be among the low points for me too, or certainly within the list. This had the feel for me of. We play this game sometimes at home where I'll just grab like the acoustic guitar and I'll just improvise lyrics with the kids of like, 
the dog is hungry. You got to go feed the dog. Like, but it's never a, any kind of actual melody. It's just whatever shit comes. And that's kind of what this sounds like. It's just like, da, 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 da. It, it feels very half baked to me personally. I mean, the length of the song is what, like half of what most of the other songs are too. It, it can, you know, who knows what it was. It might've been a partial song. They just like, you know, we got to get to 10 or whatever. Let's just throw it together. Yeah. With them struggling to finish it, it could have been, it feels a little tossed up. Hey, I just don't think he lyrically supports it very well. And sometimes the lyrics can make up for some of those melodic failings. But in this case, not that it was a huge chasm. And I, by the way, I didn't love how the record ended. It was already alluded to with the wailing. Yeah. What was like, who makes that decision to have him like, you know, kind of thing. And then like a scream at the end. It's like, what, what is going on there? He's like being recorded from the men's room or something too, you know? Yeah. And the, <laughs> Very the track away. is called one of us cannot be wrong. I'm picturing it's him and the producer fighting. You're like, actually, I think you guys were both wrong on this one. Yeah. <laughs> Wasn't that song actually about Nico as a fun fact that that's who he wrote that song about? Yeah, that might be true or either that or she was going to do it. Or maybe she did do it eventually. And the screaming was him thinking about having to listen to more Nico songs. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody loves Nico from this era, man. She yeah. must have been quite stunning in person. She was a hot, leggy blonde. You know, come on. Yeah. She, she was a, a smokestack. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I think we gabbed quite enough about Leonard Cohen's Songs of Leonard Cohen. It's time to put it to a vote. Is Songs of Leonard Cohen a must listen before you die? Tom, what say you? You know what? I'm actually going to say yes. Kind of surprisingly, I did appreciate this album for... Something that we talked about on The Zombies, which was it gave me a different frame of reference for a musical style counter to the Beatles, basically. And this gives me a counter to Bob Dylan. And I'm not a big folk guy, so it did expand my appreciation of folk music, although I do recognize the flaws in the album. I didn't hate it, and I don't hate the fact that I listened to it, so you should listen to it, too. Great. Marty, what say you? Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm a yes. This music moves me. It affects me personally. I feel connection to it when I listen to it. I actually got online and, and ordered the LP today after listening, because it's been a while since I had listened to this. <laughs> you just need that Al Pacino mug. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to cut eye holes out of it and be it for Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, de- definitely a yes for me. Cool. Let's move it on to Alan. I'm going to say it's a yes, which might be a bit surprising. It's not the kind of thing that I would normally say yes to because I think it violates some of my normal criteria. But I also feel like I try really hard to separate what I like versus what I think one should listen to. And to me, the fact that this is stirring up so many different thoughts and like points of view to me that makes it interesting and there must there's something there that I can't like personally quantify but it's sort of a greater than the sum of its parts type of thing I think so even though this isn't my favorite thing in the world and I do think he's probably overrepresented on this list I'm still gonna say yes that it's it's worth the listen wow is Lenny C gonna run the table Josh what say you (laughs) the way I was I approach this is like you know, having never heard this album before, how would I have felt having never heard this album for the rest of my life? And I feel like having heard a lot of folk music and growing up, my mom was a big Bob Dylan fan, um, Judy Collins and stuff like that. Did this add anything to the context? I think in, in some ways that it 
kind of explains to me why he was so important to some people and why he became much bigger, especially uh, lyrically. And I think I'm with Alan in in, in this respect where it's like, you know, in my terms, I would probably never listen to this album again if I didn't have to. So, and I'm honestly on the fence with this because I think in the context of what it brought later on and the path that he went on and how much he influenced so many people, I think it's important to, to understand as a frame of reference in terms of that. But to me, if I didn't have to listen to this album ever again, I would be totally happy. I would probably lean f- yes, but only in terms of like context of what was going on and where he ended up going to and becoming uh, such an icon because you can kind of see why that was the case. It's like reading Dostoevsky. You're like, I wasn't happy while I was reading it, but I was happy to be able to say I did read it. <laughs> yeah, kind of, exactly. <laughs> so I am writing yes in the in the scrolls here for yeah. you, Josh. Yeah. Honestly, if I could say maybe, I would say maybe, but I will, like I said, I'm on the fence, but in terms of the importance and context of this record for what he became, I will say yes. Great. Well, congratulations, Leonard. You're going to get all of us here. It's an easy yes for me. I think I agree with a lot of what was already said. I think he's a he's a voice. He evokes emotion in me consistently. I kind of do have to be in a certain mood to appreciate this. And I think a little bit goes a long way, meaning I don't always want to listen to a whole record of him. But he's an important artist. He's an important writer. He's a very good writer. He probably has too many records on the list, but I love opening records. I love first chances at this thing. So Leonard Cohen, songs of Leonard Cohen, you should listen to it. Congratulations, Lenny. You're in there, baby. Dude, five for five? There's only been two or three records that have gotten a five for five, I think. If you ask me tomorrow, I might say no, but I think talking about it in terms of what other people are hearing, it kind of brings up for me what I might have missed and thinking about it more deeply. Because honestly, I came in t- tonight being like, this is this is a hard no. Hmm. But then all what you guys were hearing and is totally different than what I heard. And then, so that makes me think of like, well, if they're hearing something that I'm missing, this might be more important than, uh, you know, just my own personal you know thoughts on this. There you go. Changing hearts and minds, audience, as we speak in real time. That was a thrilling conclusion. We look forward to revisiting Leonard Cohen in the future. Now there's just two more things to do before we leave you for the week. One is dip our hands in the old mailbag and pull out a few missives. So I have the uh, mailbag here. Read a couple things that folks have sent over. Thanks for sending us mail, by the way. Andrew from Philadelphia writes, Greetings and salutations, gentlemen. Like all of you, I'm a musician. I've been playing guitar and bass in many bands on both coasts since middle school. He's been touring since middle school. And uh, now he is a boring middle school science teacher who sporadically plays gigs and hangs out around town. I thoroughly enjoy tuning in when the new episodes drop. Some of my favorites are your descriptions of Incubus as 311 for smart people. Love your takes and insight, even when I completely disagree with some of your opinions on albums that were highly influential for me, such as The Cure's 17 Seconds and Minutemen's Double Nickels on the Dime. But let's be honest, if I agreed with all your takes, no matter how hot, listening would be far less interesting. I recently enjoyed your compilation of tweet-length reviews, and I'd like to make a formal request for a compilation of By the Numbers segments, as it always brings me so much joy. Thank you for filling my feed with consistently outstanding content. I mean, who's right? Who's right in this stuff? Come on. I will say that I have written into the show and made some comments as you might have heard. So these are these are real. These are these are legitimate. 
I barely put in the effort to actually like show up for these. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, you think yeah, I'm yeah. writing fake fucking emails? You don't even piss before we start. <laughs> I do. I'm just not having a sober January like Alan is. So. All right, all right. Let's keep it rolling here. We got, uh, we got, I got two more short ones. Two more short ones. Aaron from the UK writes, I'm slowly catching up now with your podcast, and I've made it to Fleetwood Mac Tusk. An interesting review. It's a strange follow-up to one of the best records ever made, but I found that over time it gets better and better. I have to say, I'm amazed that a group of clued up musician types know so little about Fleetwood Mac. Surely you've heard of Albatross. Uh, Spoiler alert, I have never heard of Albatross, Aaron. One of the most beautiful tunes ever and a massive, massive hit in the UK and the best Fleetwood Mac song ever. Play it and tell me I'm wrong. Actually, when I read this, I had never heard Albatross, but I went and listened to it. It's from the pre- Buckingham, Stevie Nicks, Fleetwood Mac. And in fact, it's situated on an album right next to Black Magic Woman, Hmm. which Fleetwood Mac also originally recorded. Aaron goes on to say, finally, I'm delighted you put Bell and Sebastian through to the list. Evidence that America's opinions on music can occasionally be taken seriously. P.S. You're still wrong about the prodigy. Ooh, false. (laughs) I have one last one because we've been getting so much great mail. I appreciate you guys putting all this time into what you write to us. It's Ben from Richmond, Virginia. He says, recently I got in my car to go to work, opened my podcast app, and almost jumped out of my seat with excitement when I saw the episode covering Buck Owens. As a huge fan of classic country and a Buck Owens fan in particular, I was thrilled to hear your thoughts on yet another one of my favorite albums. Then... I remembered what y'all said about Steve Earle's Guitar Town, and my excitement turned to dread that I was about to hear y'all pan another one of my favorites. Rob, I believe that's called Guitar Town. Guitar Town. (laughs) Yes. I thought y'all did a great job exploring where Buck Owens came from, what set him apart from his contemporaries, and why Don Rich was such a great guitarist. Anyway, awesome job, guys. I really appreciate the hard work y'all put into this thing. Can I ask you a quick question here, Rob? Did you add in the seven y'alls in that email, or did he actually write y'all like seven times? No, there's a lot of y'alls in here, yeah. Uh, he is a country fan. Classic so, country you know. fan, yeah. He is a classic country <laughs> fan after all, yeah. Exactly. If you would like to tell us what you like, don't like, what you agree with, what you don't agree with, what we got right, what we missed, shoot us an email at 1001 album complaints at gmail we read every single one of those i promise we take it into our hearts and if you're articulate enough and if you agree with rob the person who reads the email account enough then i will definitely put you on the air okay and now we're going to pass it over to tom who's going to tell us what our listening homework for the week is Thank you very much. I have the Albinator here. I feel like I should say it's coming out of a heroin stupor, but I guess based upon Leonard Cohen's life, it is coming off some six-week erotic fling and it's just (laughs) getting its bearings back and it's going to spit out an album that we are going to listen to next week. So without any further ado, drum roll please, we will be listening to... The album is Slipknot by the band <laughs> Slipknot. Have fun with that, guys. Yeah. Known as the Leonard Cohen of New right, Metal, right, of yeah. course. You know, Slipknot. <laughs> Going to be on a very long vacation. I've listened to this album before. Of course you have. It's really not as bad as you think it's going to be. <laughs> what a great sell, Tom. It's what a great not sell. not as bad as you think very it's excited. going to be. Very excited. You'd think I would be more sympathetic to bands who choose to wear costumes on stage after all these years, but... 
Okay. Listen along to Slipknot, Slipknot. I'm going to guess that's the debut record since it's self-titled, but prove me wrong, audience. But listen to the one called Slipknot and join us again next week to discuss it. Thank you for listening all this time. We, we love every one of you. Thanks for having me on, guys. Feel free to go check out the Dad Rocks podcast, where I only put out one a month, so it's an easy listen. It's easy follow. Again, thanks for having me on. This was uh, super fun. Check out Josh's podcast, Dad Rocks. Links in our show notes, and we will see you next week for 1001 Album Complaints. I've been Rob. I've been Tom. I'm Alan. I'm Marty. Boosh.